0: With me to Revelation chapter three, reading verses fourteen through twenty-two. This is page then fifty-eight, page sixteen hundred and fifty-eight uh, in your uh, pew Bible. Page sixteen hundred and fifty-eight. Of course, it's on your, it's in your large print sheets as well. Page sixteen hundred and fifty-eight, and continuing on to sixteen hundred and fifty-nine. Luke, uh, show you Revelation chapter three, starting in verse fourteen, I'm going to the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of God. to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. My friends, we come now to the end of this particular section, chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. The very end of this, uh, this section and the second part, of the second sermon on these last nine verses, 14 through 22, in which Christ loathes, Christ, we could say, despises, the lukewarm, proud church. Christ loathes the lukewarm, proud church. Now you remember, and we'll just mention it one more time, the various letters to the churches in terms of Ephesus. It had lost, indeed, it had left its first love. Kind of interesting. That's the one that starts this whole series of seven letters, doesn't it? It left its first love. You're going to see something similar here, perhaps even worse, when we get now to Laodicea. But Smyrna... The church that was faithful in persecution, one of just two that had only praise from Jesus and no condemnation. It was faithful in the midst of persecution. The church at Pergamum, (coughs) which was lax in discipline, in other words, was not disciplining. And by the way, let me just say, this is one of the reasons why we take discipline seriously in this church, because the Lord Jesus takes discipline seriously. And so it was lax in discipline. Thyatira, with its mystic tendencies. Sardis, the church was about to die. Philadelphia, the faithful missionary church, the faithful missionary church, in contrast to the missionary activity from the city, which was pagan, in terms of the Greek culture, the Greek society, the Greek philosophy, the Greek gods. Well, the Philadelphians were true missionaries and they were faithful. And now we come, of course, to the church at Laodicea. And as we have noted, every congregation or every presbytery, these might be regional churches, may exhibit one or more of these characteristics today. But in history, then, in history, as we've gone, as we've sort of gone in a in a clockwise direction from the very southwestern part of Asia Minor, or Turkey, and as we've gone in that that clockwise direction then, uh, you can see uh, that each of these then did did exhibit these particular characteristics. Well, we already mentioned a couple weeks ago that in terms of Laodicea, it had been refounded by Antiochus II, who ruled from 261 to 246 BC. The city was on a was a knot on the road system, or we might say a crossroads. The walls encompassed an area about a square mile, four corners pointing to the compass points. There are mountains to the north of Laodicea, including the snow-capped Cadmus. It was sort of the, the city sort of gave the appearance of being lowered from the mountains and caught in a pocket of rivers. The area was well known for its hot springs. That's going to be significant. It was very opulent, very wealthy, and you would expect this being at a crossroads, just like we have here in Atlanta, which historically had been a junction point for railroads and still is, but also now the interstate highways. And so the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, had brought great prosperity, was a banking center. And so you can understand why there was a lot of wealth, even as we see a lot of wealth in the city of Atlanta. A manufacturing center with sheep with glossy raven black wool out on the hills and more dainty garments as well. And so there were dying Factories, factories for dye makers. A pleasure resort, as we noted, a 900 foot long, 300 yards, 300 yard long stadium, theaters, gymnasium, an odium, that is to say, where you would hear concerts and pure medicinal lake waters, a medical center, both cool and medicinal waters and hot springs in the area, and significantly, the school of medicine had developed a very effective eye salve to anoint the eyes to heal them. In terms of its religion, religion itself, the religious ideas were bound up with healing. And as we've already noted, its church was connected with the church of Colossae, and so we find references in the book of Colossians to the church of Laodicea. Now notice as Jesus is introduced here, as he introduces himself, verse 14, he identifies himself, first of all, as the Amen. Usually at the end of prayers, children, we say Amen, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, Jesus is the Amen. He is the one uh, who is steady, who is steadfast, who is absolutely trustworthy and truthful. And so the amen is like saying, so let it be, or truly, truly. goes on to say, not only is he the amen, but he is the faithful and true witness. Absolutely true, faithful, and trustworthy, in contrast to the insincerity and hypocrisy. And notice that he also identifies himself as the beginning of the creation of God identifies himself as the beginning of the creation of God. In other words, he is the one who, by whom all things consist. Again, Colossians chapter 1, and the Laodiceans would have been very familiar uh, with that, uh, with that um, passage. Last week we looked at the warning in verses 15 through 18. We looked at the warning. In verses 15 through 18, the lukewarmness, Christ says, I know your works. He says, I know your works. Christ, of course, knows them because he has nothing good to say about them. That you are neither cold nor hot. You are neither cold, in other words, the water is neither cold, as in refreshing and delicious nor is it hot, pleasing to the taste, and recuperative, healing. Uh, Christ's desire was, I would, that you're either cold or hot. And so cold, of course, would indicate people, uh, historically, people have often said, well, cold is those who are totally untouched by grace, hot, well, those are the ones who are truly Christian, turned on, on fire for Christ. But really, what, what Jesus is saying here is, Jesus is saying, look, I wish you either had, you either were like those cold, those cool, refreshing springs of water, or that you were hot, but instead you're in the middle. And it's because you're in the middle, as it were, it's because you are, you are lukewarm, in other words, neither cold nor hot, you are an abomination to me, you are nauseating to me. So, he says, because you are lukewarm and are neither hot nor cold, you make me sick, Jesus says. I'm going to spit you out, I'm going to vomit you out. And, of course, this is what happens if you lack life in your profession of faith, or if you are unenthusiastic with regard to Christ. Notice also that in verse 17, he says, the, the, he, he's saying because you say I am rich shall become wealthy and have need of nothing that was like the, the the city of Laodicea and here it's like the church of Laodicea. they fought themselves to be really special that they were they could pat themselves on the back so to speak. you think you are really something you think you really have your act together you think you've got all this blessing. But Jesus, you see, sees into their hearts and sees what they are really like. And so his counsel is, buy from me. Buy gold refined by fire that you may be rich. Buy white garments indicating purity and righteousness in order to clothe yourselves and that the shame of your nakedness not be revealed. And I, salve to anoint your eyes that you may truly see. Well, that's the warning then that he gives in verses 15 through 18. And now we come to the rest of the passage today, starting in verse 19, as we see the exhortation. As we see the exhortation. Notice in terms of this exhortation, first of all, the zeal. The zeal that he has, that he says here. The zeal. First of all, notice, he says, those whom I myself love, I reprove, or rebuke, and chasten, or discipline. Now, The word for reprove uh, is a fairly strong word, and here the word for discipline does carry a very strong connotation. But please notice something that's very important, and discipline is never fun children, in my earlier days, I got spankings from time to time. I know. Hard to believe, but anyway. And of course, my father always said, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I never believed that, but anyway. But I've also been chastened, been rebuked, been called to account. And uh, and it's never fun, okay? It's never fun. It's never pleasant. And yet, notice notice what God says here. It's because He says it's because of my love that I do that. It's because of my love. Matter of fact, we find the same thing in um, in Proverbs uh, chapter three, verses eleven and twelve which, by the way, is also repeated in the book of Hebrews, but Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12, listen. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just like a father, the son in whom he delights. Now, isn't that interesting? In other words, what we find here, then, What we find here is the fact that God himself, because of his love, calls us to account. And, matter of fact, if he didn't do that, it would show that he didn't love us. Just like a a parent, or, or again, just like a church. If a church loves its people, That church will discipline its people, when correct its people when it is necessary. That's that's love. That's love. And so it is here. It's out of love. It's, It's with tears, if you will. It's out of concern, you see. And the Lord uses the correction of the church. The Lord uses the correction of school authorities. The Lord uses the correction of the civil magistrate. The Lord uses the correction of parents. He uses all those means and all of those things in his providence, (laughs) in his sovereignty, all of those things are for our good. And that's what it's saying here. He's saying, as many as I love, I rebuke, and discipline why is it for why is it out of the Lord's love because if we weren't disciplined and we just went our own way without correction we're going to get in a whole peck of trouble as a matter of fact in the final analysis if you just are allowed to go your own way children if you're just allowed to go your own way Where are you going to end up? In In prison. Absolutely. In jail. You could end up in all kinds of, of places. Even spiritually, you could end up in a place you don't want to be. Okay? And Jesus himself says, I love you. And that's, as a matter of fact, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Are you going to turn your back on the Lord's discipline of you, the chastening of you, calling you to account? Are you going to despise it? Are you going to hate it, children? Or are you going to submit to it and be glad for it and pay attention when you are disciplined? But as he says here, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. And therefore, because of that, that's why he says the end of verse nineteen. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. Now, the word for repentance means to turn. It means in the in the um, in terms of of the. Uh, the word itself it means a change of mind. So I'm going down the highway. I I did this the other day, as a matter of fact. I was I was headed down um, on the bankhead, Donnelly Hollowell, and I went past Westlake and I realized I needed I needed to turn around. But you see, I was convinced. I, oh yeah, there it went, you know, and I got around and I was able to take Westlake then. Okay, So in the, in the first instance, it means a change of mind. You, you understand that you're headed the wrong direction. But then you actually, take, having been convinced of that, you take that action. That's what repentance means. And it means not only that you turn around, but you do so with a sense of, of how wrong you were. How wicked you were in whatever it is, whatever sin it was, and we sin all the time, all of us sin. We need to ask every day, Lord, pardon our sins. So, with with a sense of how wrong you were, but also with a sense of I'm going, I'm going to resolve to do better next time. I want to follow Christ. I want to follow my Savior. Therefore, he says, turn from self and sin. It is interesting, though, that the the verb here is actually in the aorist tense, which means it's it's really pointing. uh, It's not even the sense of the, the ongoing repentance, but the focus here is actually on that once for all, that definitive repentance of turning, of deciding for Christ, and of turning from your sin unto Christ. As a new belief, as a new creature in him. So repent, but also be zealous. And here we have the present tense, which is the continuous attitude and the habit of being zealous, of being zealous. Now children, when we talk about being zealous, I imagine, I imagine that you might very well have a favorite sports team, and if you have a favorite sports team, let's say, oh, I don't know, Georgia Tech. Just you know, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to you're going to wear you're going to wear the the uh, the, uh, the, uh, the the shirts, right? Or maybe the cap, maybe even the University of Florida. Who knows? But anyway, you're going to do that. And what are you going to do? You're, you're proud of it. You're zealous of that sports team. You're zealous of the Gators and so forth, right? You're proud. You're, you're going to be supportive. You're going to follow that team. You're going to make sure that when it's, on, it's playing on TV, you're going to see uh, how well they do and so forth, okay? Well, that's what you have. is someone who's enthusiastic, someone who has passion, if you will, Okay? So when we talk about being zealous, that's what we're talking about. Now, as you look at as as you look at scripture, we can see examples of those who were zealous for the Lord. I remember Phineas. remember Phineas when the children of of Israel had rebelled? and what did what did fit in terms of of intermarrying between those that are the Israelites and those that were pagans. Remember what Phineas did? Remember what he did? He took a spear and he stuck it right through this man and this woman who were having sex. Right there, as it were, in front, I mean in the tent, but right, as it were, right there in front of the Israelites, having despised the Lord and his, his chastening. I'm not suggesting any of us go out and take a spear to anyone. That's not the point. But that was not a pleasant thing for him to do, was it? It was not fun for him to do. But he was so zealous for the Lord, you see, that he was willing to do that as part of the Lord's judgment against the Israelites. I think of, as we read today from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, I think in terms of 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. And, uh, uh, you know, in terms of the, in terms of the uh, uh, zealousness, he, he, remember what he says here, what Paul says here. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. But he's saying there's a way of being sorry that doesn't really count. There's a way of being sorry that doesn't really count, in which you just go and do your, you know, your, oh, yeah, I'll I'll obey, and yet you have this bitterness in your heart rather than submissiveness, or you're just sorry because you got caught. The sorrow of the world produces death. Or we could say the sorrow of the world leads you to hell. But then, Paul goes on, for observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence, what carefulness it produced in you, what clearing of what indignation, what fear, what vehemence or strong desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things, you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. You followed through on the discipline, is what Paul is saying. Where there was discipline, there was sin in the church, he said, yes, you actually did discipline this person. And you showed yourself to be sincere in terms of that. You sorrowed in a godly manner. I'm reminded of of, uh, Psalm uh, 138, as we as we sing it today. With all my heart, my thanks I'll bring. With all my heart, my thanks I'll bring. Before the gods, thy praises sing. I reminded of the words of Jesus in Psalm 69, from which we also sang. For zeal within me for thy house has been consuming me. I'm eaten up. I'm eaten up. I'm consumed with zeal for the house of the Lord. And it led Jesus to the cross. Subject to the Father's wrath as well as, as well as to being mocked by and being a song of the drunkard's. And I'm also reminded from church history, and particularly from our Reformed Presbyterian history of the, as we call them, the covenanters, those that maintained the covenants of Scotland, these godly agreements. And, you know, the last martyr in uh, 1688, the last martyr in Scotland was a man, a young man, by the name of James Renwick, R-E-N-W-I-C-K, James Renwick. He willingly went to the gallows, went to the scaffold as he was hung. And in prayer, he said, Lord, I die in the faith that thou wilt not leave Scotland, but that thou wilt make the blood of thy witnesses the seed of thy church and return again and be glorious in our land. And now, Lord, I am ready. The bride, the lamb's wife, hath made herself ready. The napkin then being tied about his face, he said to his friend attending him, Farewell, be diligent in duty. Make your peace with God through Christ. There is a great trial coming. And to the remnant I leave, I have committed them to God. Tell them me not to weary nor be discouraged in maintaining the testimony. Let them not quit nor forego one of these despised truths. Keep your ground, and the Lord will provide you teachers and ministers, and when he comes, he will make these despised truths glorious upon the earth. Then he was turned over the ladder with these words in his mouth, Lord, into thy hands I commit my spirit for thou hast redeemed me, Lord God of truth. He was in his twenties. In his twenties. James Renwick, 1688. And we could multiply the examples of martyrs throughout church history, of course. And so the Lord Jesus, who is the Lord of history, who is sovereign over And sovereign over his church says, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. But not only the zeal, but also the hearing. Notice at the very end, verse 22, He who has an ear, let him hear. We've heard this before, children. Matthew 13, verse 9, He who has an ear, let him hear. But also let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, having heard this exhortation, We also hear the promises of verses 20 and 21, the promises. Notice the communion that Jesus talks about in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door. Now here, Jesus, when it says, Behold, I stand... Again, it's the aorist tense. It's, it's the, he's stopped, <laughs> standing, and yet he is continuously knocking. It's present tense. He's knocking. And he's knocking. Being taunt that Christ is like a mortal, like merely a man, waiting and pleading for the lost sinner to respond. How many times have you heard that? Have you heard that idea? Well, Jesus is just pleading with you, and it's really just up to your will, you see. Well, my friends, salvation does not depend upon the will of man. This is not what Jesus said in John 1 and verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that's not what is being taught. That somehow Jesus is just wringing his hands as it were. And as he's knocking, he's just hoping that somehow man will respond, you see. Now what is being signified? Well, man does have a responsibility to repent and believe, to respond to God's call, to be sure. But the point of the knocking is that this is an effectual call by Christ. Christ is the one who comes to rouse the inhabitants. He's knocking and he's knocking to to wake them up. And the prior text, you see, with regard to Philadelphia... Speaks of the Lord as the one who opens, and no one shuts. It's not of the will of man, but of God. And so Jesus then says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, what will he do? I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. This, of course, means blessed fellowship with Christ. This means blessed happy fellowship with Christ. In John 14, verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Chapter 15 of John, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. And First John 2, verse 24. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And here Jesus says, if you open the door, as you open the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. This dining, of course, points to fellowship. And it starts now. It starts now. So that when you pray, it's not just, oh, I'm saying my prayers. When you pray, it is a real communion with Christ. It starts now, and it continues into eternity. And of course, it is symbolized by the Lord's Supper in a particular way. I will dine with him, and he with me, so that when we come to the Lord's table, Jesus himself is present, not physically, but spiritually he's present. He's the host at the table, and we are his guests. But not only do we have communion, as we see here, as part of Christ's promise, but notice verse 21, we have the rule. The rule, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So, Jesus, first of all, is pointing to himself. He met with temptations and conflicts. And he overcame them all and then became the conqueror. He fought with the devil. He fought all kinds of temptations. We think about the temptations, of the wilderness, there were all kinds of temptations. We we, we mustn't forget, I mean he, he was all the time dealing, he was all the time dealing with with wicked forces that are unseen, and this is especially true. As he was going to the cross, there were all kinds of opportunities, all kinds of temptations, undoubtedly, that he faced, of which we have very little knowledge. But he overcame them all and became the conqueror. And as the reward of victory, he sat down with the Father in glory. I sat down with my Father on his throne. And so we see then that those conformed to Christ in trials and victories shall be conformed to him in his glory. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. And my friends, this includes includes the struggle against lukewarmness and pride, which is what we have here in Laodicea. It includes that struggle that we, we fight that good fight of faith. First of all, against pride, to be sure, thinking that we really are something. And we're really nothing, apart from Christ. We we compare ourselves to others all the time. May God have mercy upon us not to do that. And so we struggle against that pride. But we also struggle, do we not, against the lukewarmness, the, the lack of zeal, the lack of love for Christ. But Jesus is saying, having been confronted, having been disciplined even, having been disciplined, if you come through that conflict, you see, then you will be victorious. You will be one of the overcomers. Jesus says, I will grant that person to sit with me on my throne. So I have four points of application. Children, listen carefully. Have you heard Jesus' voice and his knocking at the door of your heart? Not saying, of course, physical, not saying that. But have you heard, even in this message today, have you heard the voice of Jesus? Have you heard the voice of Jesus and his knocking at the door of your heart? you have then open the door Mm. secondly are you experiencing sweet fellowship with him now Mm. and anticipating further in eternity third are you overcoming temptation and lukewarmness in your life and fourthly do you have zeal for the Lord his kingdom well if you do or if there's a measure of that in you then praise God because if you have any sense of that at all it's all by his grace it's because he has rebuked you and chastened you It's because he loves you and he has enabled you therefore to, to show forth that zeal A manifestation of your repentance. My friends, Jesus loathes, despises, vomits out of his mouth the lukewarm, proud church. He walks in the midst of the candlestick, he walks in our midst. May we, by his grace, be enabled to say, Lord, I love Thee, I love Thee with all my heart. My thanks I'll bring. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? And now, our Father, accomplish Thy purposes here in our midst this day. Be pleased, O God to work graciously. And Lord Jesus, may we indeed, by thy power, by thy sovereignty, hear the knocking at the door. And by thy spirit, may we indeed open. And so Lord, here are, for the young people here, Lord, thou dost see their hearts, the pride, the rebellion, God, us see the hearts of all of us. And so have mercy this very day. May this be the crowning day for more than one person. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.